You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast by students and graduates. Whether you've never heard of philosophy or have a philosophy PhD, we hope you enjoy these conversations as we discuss some of life's big questions over a few beers. Enjoy. So, a lot of people who have a passing knowledge of philosophy would have probably come across the phrase, I think therefore I am, or in its Latin, cogito ergo sum, or in its French, je pense non je suis. There you go. Um, it's emphasis on the ponce. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, a lot of people don't really get what it means, or maybe, you know, well, there's a lot more to it than I think therefore I am. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about Descartes, the French philosopher, um, because he's a, he's a good starting point for people who've never really had much contact with philosophy. He's considered the, the father of, of contemporary philosophy, of modern day philosophy. So, so during the kind of the Enlightenment period, he brought about these ideas of uh, infallib- infallibilism kind of thing, um, and I think therefore I am kind of spawned from that. So to give kind of a, a basic explanation of what he means by I think therefore I am is that all he can really know is that he's a thinking thing anything other than that is kind of an assumption it comes from a deep distrust of everything yeah Yeah. so just to give some context um, basically these ideas of Descartes came from his meditations um, in which he basically locked himself away in a room and sat there until he'd finished these meditations. And he, he goes through a series of self-doubt. Um, so he makes a, a load of statements, totally refutes them all, doubts everything, and then eventually comes out of that. Yeah, the first of which being, well, how can I know anything around me is real? And he goes, well, because of my senses. And then he says, well, but my senses can be fooled, but I'm thinking, so I can't doubt that at least something is thinking, and that's me. I think, therefore, I am. And yeah, I, I like it. It's really nice to read. I mean, well, as far as philosophical texts from that era go, it's nice to read because it's got this really informal feel to it. It's got the stream of consciousness thing. Mm. He even he even at the end of one of the chapters, he says some shit like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm tired now, so I'm going to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's in, in a lot of ways, it's uh, what philosophy should be. And I think that's why a lot of people are so... Um, familiar with that phrase and and what it means this stems from his perception of the human body and mind Descartes believes that the body and the mind are two completely separate things yeah the idea of Cartesian duality yeah Yeah. the the mind-body split so I I think it's good to start with the I think therefore I am because they his ideas progress from one another so we've got the distrust, we've got the I'm completely distrustful of everything, but I understand that I am distrustful, so I must be thinking, so I can't distrust that I'm thinking. Yeah. And what am I then? So I'm a thinking thing. Uh, uh, the most fundamental point, all we can really say without any doubt, is that I exist. Yeah. What, you, what I is, is up for question. Because all we can know is that I am a thinking thing. Mm. Whether we have limbs or anything like that, whether we have a physical body, mm. again, we can be fooled by our senses yeah. in that sense. Well, he, he tries to bring everything back 
from this small because this this is pretty much just his starting point I think therefore I am and it, from that he or at least he, he's under the impression that he brings everything back he doesn't because it's a very very flimsy argument that gets knocked down by his predecessors straight away yeah, I mean it, it basically in the rest of the meditations it goes something like God's probably real somehow be- God wouldn't deceive me yeah God, God God's not a deceiver yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Well, yeah. Because I think he like he mathematically proves God with just his mind. Yeah. It's 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 a reformulation of the ontological argument. Ontology being the the dealing with the, the definition of things, what things are. So, by God's very nature, um, in a kind of abstract way, he sort of proves God to be real through his thoughts. Mm. Th- Which becomes cyclical, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah it's the Cartesian it, it, circle. Yeah, it, it's it's not a very good argument. If, and the most interesting thing about Descartes is the questions that he frames, which still haven't been satisfyingly answered. Which is like most philosophers, it's, it's more about the questions rather than mm. the solutions. Definitely. Yeah. So he he sees I'm a thinking thing as true. I, he 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 looks at his surroundings and he thinks, oh, so what's what's my body? What does that mean? What relationship does my mind have with my body and by extension the surrounding world so he sees his own body as something completely separate so he suggests that without the body the mind would still live on Mm -hmm. he thinks that thoughts and your thoughts in particular will live on without the body so that even that even brings in like after death scenarios you can extend his opinions to that yeah in sixth form i was taught descartes alongside the philosophy of religion it, mm. it was part of um, yeah it was yeah it was it was we were learning at the same time exactly the same lessons we were taught shit about the soul in in um yeah in hinduism like the, the atman and the, you know um, samsara and the reincarnation and stuff it was like different views on on the soul it's basically an afterlife theory as far as my teachers were concerned three years ago I studied Kuhn Thomas Kuhn spy international <laughs> 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 man of mystery <laughs> Thomas Kuhn I like the way you started though. I like with the just straight in three years ago I started Coon. Yeah. So that was good. But then it devolved. <laughs> then I said, Coon. Thomas Coon. Like a complete flat. Shake I studied Thomas Coon three years ago. and you, So you guys would have studied him one year ago, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't he one of the most quoted people within the humanities? Yeah. So he wrote a book called Structure of Scientific Revolutions. You got it. Yeah. And when when did he write that? 60s. 60s? I want to say 60s, but I feel like that's wrong. Was that right? 62? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, look at me go. So I, I think where he starts is applying modern day ideas to Aristotle. So He was a lecturer. Yes, he was a physician, sorry. Yeah. That's a good start. So he started off teaching science. And so, which kind of gives him a better mandate to talk about the history of science. Do you mean, a, phys- a, do you mean a physicist? Yeah. What, what did you say? You said a physician. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Red Stripe. That was his excuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he was a physicist, I think. Yeah, he was a physicist, and he 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 was struggling with critiquing Aristotle. I think it was. What is a a trend when people talk about 
ancient history is they seem to think that the smart people of that time were actually stupid. Yeah, they seem to they they take history as a, a linear succession and that we're smarter now than we were then. Yeah, they go well. Aristotle said this, but really is a bit of an idiot because yeah. this isn't that's not the case. Definitely. Well, I, I there is one exception when Aristotle says that a uh, spider has six legs. No, not six legs. Wait, how many? How many? <laughs> eight. They have eight. eight. Yeah, they have it. Yeah. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. The reaction I got there was like, wait, shit, do they? <laughs> so I did that myself, man. I said physician a minute ago. <laughs> yeah. My fucking life is over. <laughs> Tom Scoo is a physician. So, so, so he's realising, actually, no, they're not stupid. You're looking at it anachronistically. Yeah. So, so that's his starting point. So he, he sees Aristotle as living in a different world. Yeah, so he, he does away with this idea of progression. Yeah. And... It tries to destroy the idea of linear history. Mm-hmm. And his whole book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, is an argument against this idea of a cumulative progression of ideas and that science is building on other sciences and knowledge within science is a perfect progression of from start to finish. Yeah. Ra- you're, so, you're, you're yeah. advancing every time. So rather than, yeah, rather than advancing from one theory to the next he thinks it's paradigmatic mm-hmm. that you have that there are certain paradigms within science um such as heliocentrism or newton's mm. laws einstein. and einstein and with each of these ideas we have to operate under them and it, until they no longer work and we have to it, it's akin to a kind of real revolution mm-hmm. a, a political revolution so his notion of paradigms although paradigms was obviously a word before he coined it when you talk about a paradigm you're talking about Kuhn's yeah, well, he, con- concept of a paradigm he coined yeah. the term paradigmatic shift yes but not paradigm yeah yeah even though he, he specifically targets science you can apply it to culture mm-hmm. paradigm shifts that happened in the 60s you're talking about the same kind of paradigm shift so ideas have been abandoned, no ideas are in place, and up until the point when those ideas are abandoned, you're in that world, you're in that paradigm. Yeah, and to break out of that paradigm, there needs to be a revolution in order yeah. to do so. So like, fundamentally, what establishes that paradigm, its, it's grounding, has to be undone or proved wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but that can only be done after it's demonstrably untrue. So either start to, you know, holes start to appear and mm. they get wider and wider. Should we talk about... The heliocentric model is the easiest way of talking about how... So the, the, the Earth revolves around the Sun yeah, rather Yeah, this than... is Aristotle. Yeah. Suggesting that the Earth was the centre of the universe. Yes, yeah. is the geocentric model. So the, yeah, so that's that's what Ptolemy thought, which is, yeah, which is geocentric, yeah. My bad. Obviously, it's not. <laughs> yeah, right, it's not. <laughs> but up until, up until Galileo started publishing documents saying... This isn't the case. Yeah, Galileo and Copernicus, yeah. This mm-hmm. is the the accepted truth for yeah. everyone. This was what was known as this, truth. This yeah. is the truth. Yeah, but I think so. The main point that Kuhn wants to make is that science isn't necessarily concerned with what's true. And this is what gets Kuhn a lot of flack uh, within the scientific community, even though he's a physici- physicist himself. <laughs> I was going to say physician. <laughs> okay. Um but yeah, science doesn't care what's metaphysically true. Science cares what's functional. Yeah. 
Exactly. So before, when we had the the, the Ptolemaic model or Aristotelian model of the universe, that the Earth was the center and the world was flat. Thanks for that that visual prop of your outstretched hand indicating the world's flat. Have you heard the new donut theory? That's exciting. Yeah. The donut theory. Let's <laughs> <laughs> not get into that. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Yeah, that that worked. Yeah. Um. The, it, that that's the important thing. Hmm. It's not. It they built equations out of. Yeah, and and maps. The, yeah. the cartography and everything worked based on that theory. Mm. But then, Galileo comes around. Copernicus comes around. Yeah, the Copernican revolutions. They like, they realise actually, it's not the case. They've they've used their telescopes, looked at the stars, figured out what what what, what planet is it? It's Uranus. Enough about that. <laughs> that's, 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 I'll stop at you. Instead of circling the Earth, it's going erratically. Yeah. So obviously, it's not circling the Earth; it's circling the Sun. So even though Galileo has punctured this massive hole in the theory, in Uranus, in Uranus, uh, hundreds of years sorry. pass until it's accepted that. Yeah, just because there's one kind of small hole in the theory yeah. doesn't mean that science is going to say shit there's a hole in the theory let's start again a lot of what Kuhn is saying is that there is a huge, num- a huge number of anomalies in the scientific theory but they simply get ignored mm. for yeah. a very long time yeah just just like with the revolution yeah. you have to have a majority overturning the government before mm-hmm. you know you have you always have dissenters and and going back to science this is how you know the, the whole retesting and retesting of evidence against the theory it's only when the evidence mounts up. So yeah, this isn't this really isn't a criticism of science. Kuhn's, Kuhn is a scientist. Mm. He's not. What what he's criticizing is the idea that science is it's infallible. Yeah, and an objective truth. Mm. Yes. Which I I don't know how many people believe that, but I think there are some people yeah. in the scientific community, yeah, yeah. especially Definitely. the way that the language revolves around that. Uh, going back to well, new, it's not new, scientific, so it's yeah, not true. Yeah. New yeah. atheism often. Yeah. It gets accused of that. But the idea that. Scientists are real people, and scientists will, to get approval from other scientists, will change their theories so that they correlate with general assumptions. Yeah. And practically, they won't get funded if they if they come up with yeah. some loopy idea that the world is made to of jelly. To add to that, what's important is that scientists within their paradigm see the paradigm. Well, they don't see the paradigm. It's invisible to them. So as far as they're concerned, they're working towards this greater idea of science as a whole. Of knowing everything. Exactly. So they don't understand that they're in a paradigm. They believe that they're on a staircase up to the, the ultimate truth. Hmm. So but it, it's only when they start It's only when the paradigm starts to break down that they realise they're in a paradigm. When when things start not working out, mm. when, when someone tests and retests and goes through the whole mm. scientific method comes up with something that doesn't quite work and enough of that happens for people to realise actually we need to start this we again. need to think of something else mm-hmm. when the paradigm becomes visible that's when that's when that's the end of the paradigm yeah, yeah and one criticism of Kuhn is that he only gives examples of two or three paradigms and I think they are uh, Einstein Newton and Aristotle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if I remember correctly he does talk about Mini revolutions. Yes. Yeah, he talks about light quite a lot in terms of photons. I think there's a, a paradigm shift between light as a particle, light as a wave, and then light as a photon. Yeah. And phlogiston, he talks a lot about. Yeah. yeah. Phlogiston. phlogiston, Jesus. Phlogiston Christ. is the idea that there's 
The reason so Vegas the re- combustible yeah. has an element that, that makes but, it combustible. Yeah, th- yeah. There's, a, there's a thing within objects that burns, that's phlogiston. And the reason why objects burn more is because they have more phlogiston. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. Yeah, it, it did work. Yeah. yeah. If you've not thought that oxygen is combustible, up until that point, you'd be thinking, yeah, of course there is it's something. more phlogiston. Yeah, this match is full of phlogiston. <laughs> I mean, when we're talking on a, you know, a very um, brought back level, we're, we're, we're dealing with like theoretical models. We're not dealing with anything we can tangibly see. A lot of science, especially when we get into quantum shit, is, is largely theoretical anyway. Mm. And it was theoretical back then, it's theoretical now. I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassing myself a little bit. We're, not, gonna... we're not scientists. Yeah. <laughs> no, if you haven't worked that out yet, we're not. Idea. This is the philosophy of science. Yeah. <laughs> so you, don't, you don't have to know science. <laughs> no, mo- most philosophers of science know science. Bit of a segue from that, but related to that point. Um, who's the guy in the wheelchair? Hawking. Stephen Hawking. He, uh, Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen Hawking wrote a book, and oh, he wrote several books, but at the start of one of them, he says philosophers have failed to, you know, produce anything meaningful or true about the universe, and scientists have picked up the mantle, and now they're they're answering the questions that philosophers couldn't. Hmm. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? They're two different disciplines. But it's it's this kind of Aristotle thought he was nearly at the point of knowing everything. Yeah. Until someone came around and thought spiders have. I think what's important for me in getting my head around Kuhn and getting my head around the fact that science isn't all what it seems is that, well, first we need to um, define necessary and contingent. Yeah. So when something is necessary, it is always the case, no matter the circumstance. So to say that, again, this this is assuming some things, but to say two plus two is four is necessary, no matter... Two pens plus two pens equals four pens. So no matter what way you you shape it, two plus two is four. Yeah. But things that are contingent are to say that today is a Thursday. If you say today's Thursday tomorrow, it's not. Mm-hmm. So which would be a contingent fact. So it's it's correct now, but might not be correct tomorrow or yesterday. And science is the same. Science is is not necessary. So for for Aristotle to come up with his theories. He came out with those theories because of a certain number of factors. If you go to go to an alternate universe, it is not a necessary fact that Aristotle will come out with this theory and then the Copernican revolution would happen later on. Science is not necessary in a linear sense like that. They're all contingent ideas. Mm. Yeah, they rely on... The circumstance. Yeah. They're all historically determined. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, one of the ways I lecture I used to phrase it was um, the modern conception of scientists of, as people who sort of you know, boffins who aren't human mm. these really inhuman people that just walk along beaches going oh look at that evidence just washed up like there's a bit of evidence to support my theory no they're, they're already looking for yeah evidence isn't driftwood it's it's something that they're actively seeking evidence they're searching for something to fit their own mm. preconceptions yeah which is which which sort of goes in the face of this idea that they're really not and that they're searching for ultimate truth yeah or, or or something to disprove their theory which they are but they're hoping that doesn't happen and they'll largely ignore those facts until they can't yeah. because if if they find something that completely disproves years of work they're not going to go oh well 
are they? They're going to no, try and <laughs> avoid that at all costs. I think Coon discusses as well the practical sense that a lot of time and money is spent on researching a particular theory. So they're not going to simply cast it aside at the first anomaly. The scientists are invested in their own theory and they're going to stick with it as long as they can. They're going yeah. to dismiss as many anomalies as they can. As, yeah, until a revolution starts. Yeah. I mean, we should probably clarify what we mean by ultimate truth. We're talking about yeah. truth with a capital T. Yeah. And that's not to say that this uncapitalised lowercase truth isn't useful. It fucking is. Like, it, it, it's the best kind of truth out there. Mm. Unless you're talking about mathematical truth. Everything is contingent, except for these very few necessary things, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. But it is it is the best kind of contingent truth, and I don't think Kuhn would argue against that. But what he's saying is, it's not up there with, I don't know, the, the kinds of things that Plato was talking about with forms and things, or the, you know, religious truth. Mm. It's not the truth, it's susceptible to change. And I, I think most scientists would probably, or hopefully, agree with that. Mm. I think the thing to bear in mind as well is we're not dismissing science. Yeah. Right? Science cures cancer, right? Science, science does progress within its paradigm, but it's the, the kind of fetishism that is put towards scientists as knowing everything, right? They know the truth. Yeah. It produces results, but, you know, you've got to realise at the same time these people are human, they exist within their time, and at some point in the future, someone's going to look at us and laugh and think, oh, you're stupid. You can basically sum it up by saying it's an argument against thinking anachronistically. It's a, an argument against the idea of ultimate truth and progressivism in the sense of knowledge, which I think is not dismissing science. Happy guy, folks. <laughs> yeah. When are we recording? Three days ago. Yeah, the 8th, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Science isn't a mountain of knowledge that someone's putting on the pile. Are we still doing this whilst Joe is having a piss? Yeah, fuck Joe. <laughs> okay, so Joe, would you like to explain what normal science is and revolutionary science is? Normal science is science that exists within a paradigm, right? Am I right? I think so. So, so if we take Newton and gravity, mm-hmm. okay, we all know Newton's idea that. Gravity bloody exists because of the apple stuff. Yeah. Um, one example I could think of normal science within that is that with the absence of gravity, a hammer and a feather dropped at the same height at the same time would land at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. That's normal science because it exists using using the the ideas developed by Newton. Yeah. That exists within the paradigm. Right. Am I right? Yes, Am yeah. Right? So that so, me up, guys. So you're using established paradigmatic rules and things, yeah. Like, what's that thing you used in uh, in science classes? You got that little. I don't know why I'm hand gesturing to you on a podcast. I'm not sure what this gesture is either. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you listening, it's not useful. <laughs> right, it's it's like a weight thing. You hold it like that, thermometer type thing, a hook on the bottom. Yeah. You you dangle things off yeah, it and yeah. you sort of hold it and it goes. It's new. It's Newtonomer. New, it weighs newtons. Yeah. Oh, oh. it's like a syringe. But yes. Yeah, I got you. Like, it's got a spring in it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a newton meter. I see, yeah. Okay. Newtometer. Newtometer. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Okay. Citation needed. Carry on with that. So yeah, you're using. Is that a fucking weird aren't scientists? <laughs> 
A I Newton got, meter is the correct. <laughs> I got a C in my GCSE science. So. <laughs> <laughs> I got an A. Yeah, that's how you remember a Newtonmeter. I got a B. And I haven't thought about I it for. I haven't thought about that for at least five years. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so so um, <laughs> the point I was trying to make is you have established rules of measurement. Yeah. You're you're going off. Yeah. It's pre-established things. Um, Aristotle's view was that uh, objects fall more they fall faster because they love the ground more <laughs> which still works yeah. 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 which still works yeah. <laughs> the, the difference the outcome is the same depending on how the rules work the, the difference really is just the language he's applying to it but then yeah obviously there come points where that starts to falter because the language isn't sufficient to describe what's actually happening but, but clearly nearly all science reaffirms a paradigm but then you get on to Revolutionary science. Revolutionary science. Do we have any examples? Paranormal stuff? Is that, does that count? Uh, that's bollocks. Uh, that's just bollocks. Yeah, that's just weird. Sorry, Derek Akora. <laughs> have you seen the Michael Jackson seance? No. It's the best thing you, you'll ever see. I used to yeah. do seances. It's, you? it's Derek yeah. Akora after the passing of MJ, round a table with just people who like Michael Jackson. No one that important. Just fans of Michael Jackson. Right. And then Derek Akora. Uh, Derek Akora. Yeah. Gets possessed by Michael Jackson. <laughs> and he's like, I love you. Thank you for listening to my music. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it was, pub- it was live on Sky One. Derek so people oh, were texting yeah. in. Derek Akora was the guy who was in Most Taunted, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He I feel a presence. Exposed as a fraud. Yeah. Yeah. When they had the camera rolling, and he goes, Fanny! <laughs> <laughs> and they, they all burst out laughing. It's like an outtake. Because yeah. he, he, he was basically making up this someone called Fanny, and they're all like laughing about it. And he's going, It's bollocks, isn't it? All these fucking mugs. And it's on YouTube, and you just like, yeah, just, just having Derek Akora Fanny. <laughs> right, that bit's getting cut out. Yeah. Or given to the Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what, what counts as revolutionary. Galileo, right? Copernican Revolution. Copernican yeah. Revolution. Yeah, that's yeah. like the. It is, yeah. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Joke and girl. That took like place over a hundred years at least, didn't it? The revolution. It was a long time. Yeah. Oh, right. The way Kuhn describes it is a leap of faith. So it, it takes a certain number of people from the old paradigm to take a leap of faith into the new paradigm. So it's kind of a shot in the dark. So they don't really know what where science is heading. Their old paradigm is kind of failing. So they jump into the new one with the hope that it's going to answer the questions. Mm. So the Copernican Revolution, he studied the planet Uranus. Um, I made sure to say the planet Uranus. Yeah. Um, it didn't help you. <laughs> and somehow it still didn't help me. He saw the way it was changing in the sky seemed erratic and that it didn't fit the notion that it was orbiting us. Um, and through a series of of other discoveries, you know, as it's quite clear, we're not scientists, so I'm not 100% clear on this, but it became clear that Uranus wasn't circling the Earth, wasn't orbiting the Earth, therefore there must be another point in the solar system which is central, and then he said that the Sun is central, that the heliocentric theory came about, and that things orbited the Sun instead of the Earth, and that theory seemed to work better than things orbiting the Earth. So. Even now, to say that things orbiting the sun in the heliocentric theory is correct, it, you know, we just assume that to be the truth. But who's to say that that might change in fifty years' time? Because it might. So, 
the point of revolutionary science is that it has to directly contradict normal, the, current paradigm. the current paradigm. Right, yeah, so I've just been looking back at my essay, and um, there's this critique that normal science is not particularly normal, because revolutionary science also happens on a consistent level. Revolutions are a natural part of the way things the cycle will play out. Yeah, cycles. There's this argument of aren't revolutions just a normal part of paradigmatic mm. structure as well. Mm. It's it's hard to, to describe without saying the word progress because yeah, would throttle me to death. But for science to work. Yeah, work. For it to work as science is intended to. To function. Yeah. It would have to break apart and start again. Something something paradigm. Something, Futurama episode. Something, something, edit this. No, it's, uh, Family Guy. Something, something, dark side. Oh, yeah. you've got that. Something, dark side. Something, something, complete. <laughs> I don't know anything about how Karl Popper relates to this, so you better explain. Basically, Karl Popper says that a scientific theory isn't necessarily scientific until it can be falsified. Mm-hmm. So, ah, so the opposite to verification. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, generally the, the accepted idea is that a scientific theory has to be verified. Or be falsifiable. Um, so essentially, if a theory is to be scientific, it has to be able to be disproved. And therefore he kind of argues for the linear method of science, that a theory is put in place, and then if it is falsifiable evidence is given against it. If it can counter that evidence, then it remains a true part of science. If it's falsified, then we disband from that theory, kind of leave that aside and move on to the next better theory, which is what Kuhn is arguing against. My experience of Karl Popper and falsification comes from, if I can't prove your stupid God argument false, then it doesn't stand. Like if, um, if someone says, oh, there's a unicorn behind you, but only I can see it. Mm. And you've got no way of disproving that. I've, I've mentioned this before, that there's an elephant in the room. Yeah. But every time you look, it moves. Yeah. You can't. You can't disprove yeah. that. Right? And another similar example is Bertrand Russell's teapot floating around Saturn. He says there's a teapot floating around Saturn, but you've got no way of knowing that, so it may as well be false. Mm. It's an argument against because a lot of people say, well, God could be real. You've got no way of disproving that. It's like, well, I've got no reason to think of it as true either. So. It may as well be the teapot floating around Saturn because there's there's so little evidence for it. You may whatever can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. And today we're going to talk about Plato's Republic, and I'm again joined by Joe and Joe. Hi. Right. Joe. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he spoke for both of us. We should probably start by introducing a few things about the book about Plato and about during the the narrative of the book Plato uses Socrates who in real life was his teacher there's a little bit more to it than that obviously explain various parts of the book um, and ideas that he uses and what the Republic actually is what the forms are I think this is the the book where the um, the idea of the cave first appears do you guys want to yeah well it basically revolves around it's it's a narrative around Socrates who was obviously mentioned Plato's teacher, and mm. um, who else is he? Who else is he with? It's not. He's with a, he's with a bunch of generals and. Stalcon and. <clears throat> yeah. And they're they're going to a feast, and he starts off with the question, "What is it to be good?" Mm-hmm. So that the whole book is Plato writing as Socrates, 
talking to other people, yeah, sharing their ideas about what. Yeah, he's kind of using Socrates as a bit of a puppet, as a mouthpiece for his own kind of ideas. Yeah, which is which is something that Plato does in his later dialogues. You've got early dialogues where, like the the trial of Socrates, I think it's called the death of Socrates. Should we edit this bit so you just say it right first time? <laughs> so you've got earlier dialogues like the last days of Socrates, where he uses. <laughs> That was nothing what you said. <laughs> the, the trial, the death. <laughs> Last days. Alright. So you've got earlier. Oh, okay, you're right. right. So, yeah, you've got earlier dialogues where Socrates is being used as a historical figure. He's actually, you know, uh, Plato's giving a historical account of what Socrates did in things like The Last Days of Socrates, which is about the death of Socrates. And then in later dialogues, uh, Plato starts to come into his own more, and Socrates appears as this kind of character, uh, which is really what he's doing in the Republic and other books like the Symposium, where he's, you know, he's he's just a mouthpiece, as you said, for Plato's ideas. Mm. So they're literally coming across people. Yeah, and it's people like politicians and generals, because Socrates has this thing, especially the character of Socrates, but it's also true of the real Socrates, sort of going up to important people and pissing them off and asking them really complex questions like what is good um, because usually these people are in positions of power so he likes to sort of get them to really think are they the, the people they think they are if you've not read a dialogue before it's helpful to understand that he's only com- he's communicating this his ideas through the conversations that these characters are having they might be based on real people but yeah they're representations they're representations so Basically, all the people that come across him and argue with his point, the only reason for them being there is to stop other people criticising his ideas. Yeah. So he's just cutting off any possible contention that he may face later. When you look at philosophy, particularly in an A-level concept, in an A-level context in the textbook, you'll get an argument and then you'll be given a counter to that argument and an argument back. So what Plato's doing in his works is he's given a dialogue, so there is no case for the, the counter-argument. He's given the argument and the counter-argument in his own works. And resolved the counter-argument. Exactly. Yeah. So he's yeah. basically countering his uh, his opponents before they have a chance to object to And him. by the end of it, you've got an amalgamation of loads of different points that he's taken from other people yeah. to form his one idea. Yeah, I mean, one criticism of the way he does this is he presents his counter-arguments as being particularly weak. Mm. Yeah, he straw-mans in, in, in some yeah. cases, yeah, he does straw-man them. But that that's a criticism of just him as a character. The characteristics of Plato. I think yeah. the way he comes across in the book, from my person, personal opinion, he's so sassy. He's so like, mm. just, oh, so you mean this? When really, that's not what they said. One of my, shall we move on to Thromachus or... Thrasymachus. Or Thrasymachus, yeah. Right. I say Thrasymachus. It's ancient Greek, but we can do. Which which one of them represents um, the sophism? Thrasymachus, right? Thrasymachus. Yeah, he, yeah. He, his arg- so Plato at the start is like, what is good? What does it mean to be living in a society where you're acting well, like your actions are good actions? But he it kind of evolves this into okay, so what would make the the perfect society? What would make the best, goodest society? The most good. The yeah. most good society. Mm-hmm. 
So he comes across this character, Thermachus, right? Thrasymachus. Thrasymachus, whatever you want to say. Thrasymachus. Thrasymachus, why? <laughs> and he sa- you can say it whatever you want, right? Thrasymachus, Thermachus, I'm just going to call him Thermachus, says what is right is what the state says is right. So whoever is ruling you, whatever they say is right, is right. And obviously, for my personal opinion, I think that's true because the the implication of what he's saying is that there is no such thing as what is right. It's completely arbitrary. Is he actually saying it's arbitrary or is he saying, is it more nuanced than that? Is he actually saying the collective power of a state um, should, you know, should always be obeyed and that's objectively good? Or is he actually just saying it doesn't matter but you have to do this because it's the law? I've always read it as it doesn't matter. Right. But I, I can see where you're coming from where objectively whoever says whoever's in control of you is right. Yeah. Cause but, it, cause but I've always read yeah. him as being critical of that, being mm-hmm. critical of like the divine right or whatever of whoever's in charge of you. Yeah. But that's just my reading of it. But Plato, he, well, not easily, he just dismisses him. Yeah. He's just like, well, no, and moves on with that. Yeah, he basically says that the state is not this infallible power. Yeah. yeah. That the state makes mistakes at the time. Mm-hmm. So to say that what the state says is good is good is just ridiculous yeah but f- f- for me I don't think that correctly argues against Thermachus because I've always taken it as Thermachus is being cynical Thermachus t- is abstracting more yeah he, he's not literally saying that the state is what is right he's he's being critical of the state in mm. saying that the state what the state says goes mm. but he's kind of saying that in a sarcastic sense yeah, yeah. Plato yeah. goes oh right but the, the state can be wrong so they can't be right in this sense. The state may say something that's detrimental to the state, and then he like yeah. The the the, the point being that Thrasymachus doesn't actually offer any alternative, while Plato tries to. Yeah, yeah. But because of that, Plato thinks, all right, I've dismissed you now. Mm. Yeah, well, because I, I always used to read Thrasymachus as being like this, you know, typical statesman soldier bloke. You know, he he represents the sort of authoritarian, utilitarian. You know, do what the state says. But yeah, you, you, the more the more readings you have of it, you, the more you gain a sense of nuance. Because I think I think it, give a bit of historical context. Think they were friends. Mm, I'm sure they were. Plato and him, but they, they they even end the conversation in in the dialogue as as friends. They they gain a proper understanding. They start off being really sassy to each other, and then they they especially in. Plato's description of Thermachus is like, yeah. he's like, well, he's bursting at the seams trying to counter my argument of what is good. And he's like, oh, I'm so smart, Plato. Which I think, I don't know, that's just, my critical opinion of Plato is that he's just a bit of a bit of a dick towards, to, through through Socrates, he was a bit of a dick. Yeah, this is the thing. How much of it is just <clears throat> him using the character of Socrates and, you know, uh, accentuating a lot of what Socrates was like like the the whole, you know, th- this image of this philosopher in barefoot who had nothing, who would go up to princes and kings and generals and sort of have a go at them and tell them their life was worth nothing. You know, how much is he playing on that and how much is he... Because Plato didn't do half the stuff that Socrates did, yet Socrates continues to, to, to be like we, we know him through all the accounts in Plato's dialogues. Plato was fairly chilled. as a Have some more old Rosie. Thank you. 
Well, oh, should we get on to the Yeah, Plato gets onto this idea of the Republic, and um, there's this relationship between the inner self and the ordering of, of one's own personality and thoughts, and with the ordering of this utopia, which he calls the Republic. And one of the ideas I think that interests the three of us most is the idea of the philosopher king that rules this republic. And it's it's interesting because you get a lot more of uh, Plato's obvious elitism coming in here. Do you guys want to talk about that? So basically his idea of, a, of the philosopher king is that the only person who could possibly rule over a society is a philosopher because a philosopher is the only person who is of, of sound enough mind, who's has got enough kind of rounded idea of life um, and has examined life to a, a good enough extent where they can make these decisions that can affect a whole society. And that is really quite arrogant, obviously. Um, coming from a philosopher saying a philosopher is the only person who can make this kind, these kind of decisions. Um, but he puts philosophers at such kind of a high level. Okay. Well, yeah, he, he his whole idea is rather than a democracy, you want a meritocracy. So you want someone who's or a council of people who are best suited for the job, and he, in his... And it, it is a meritocracy based on his definitions, though. Yeah, but being e egotistical, he's like, well, obviously philosophers are best suited for the job of ruling yeah. everyone. So I mean, gonna... the, the idea of what a philosopher was back then was a little bit more broad, I guess, from how we see it. Well, philosophy as a subject, at least, it entailed... You know the sciences and maths and things. I mean, he thought you had to study maths for like eight years before. And then you wasn't could... it like physical education as well? Yeah, yeah, it was loads of shit. Um, but he, yeah, so he thought basically a philosopher wasn't just a philosopher; they were a perfect human. Yeah. So it, it kind of makes sense, but yeah, it, it basically boils down to this weird um, sort of benevolent dictatorship. It's quite a harsh society by today's standards. Along there was a there's a lot of meticulous planning of roles within a society. Oh, yeah, that's right. He has different divisions, doesn't he? Yeah, so there's di so Philosopher King's obviously in charge. Then there's the Guardians, if I can remember correctly, that like keep law and order. But then he also talks about the myths that he's going to purposely feed into the society yeah. about roles, about how I think it's something to do with the, the blood, what blood's made of. <laughs> so, obviously, the people... The philosopher kings will bleed gold. <laughs> um, the guardians will bleed silver. Yeah, this is where it gets weird. Yeah, so he, 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 well, what he's trying to push is strict class division. He's basically faking culture to enforce his ideas using myth. Mm. Yeah. So this is where a lot of the critique comes into Plato's Republic. Uh, Karl Popper mm -hmm. was quite famous for naming him one of the enemies of democracy or something. He basically compared them to the Nazi regime. Yeah, because Karl yeah. Popper was writing in the 1930s when... Yeah, this whole like, thing was going on. ...fascist dictatorships were, you know, Mussolini and Hitler. Within his context, he sees Plato's writing as, oh, well, he's trying to formulate a, a government that is yeah. fascistic. <laughs> Fascistic. I don't think that's a word. Fascistic's definitely a word. Okay. Definitely a word. We'll, we'll make it a word, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's interesting because um, at the height of the Nazi regime, philosophy also had its height. You know, it, it did, definitely, yeah. Philosophers like Heidegger were, were, were massive. Um, uh, Nietzsche was 
famously, even though he wasn't a Nazi. No, he was. He was. Very he, was yeah. Yeah. he was branded a Nazi. But I mean, yeah, all internet intellectuals like uh, Wagner and yeah, you know, it, it's this thing that your philosophy doesn't necessarily mean democracy, which is the sad truth of having this this open ended conversation that is philosophy. You get all kinds of you get a plurality of different opinions and ideas. But yeah, it is it is basically this sort of elitist dictatorship that Plato's advocating. But I think that... It, we do I, need to see that in context as well, though. Yeah, exactly. We yeah. need to see that in the context of an ancient Greek setting, because it was never Plato's idea to set out a totalitarian dictatorship. No. Because there he, was he no totalitarian dictatorship the word in Greece. Fascist. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No. I mean, yeah, by, by, by the standards of the day, I mean... Fascism would have probably been all right compared to they had, yeah, they, yeah. They, had, they had slavery, you know. Exactly. I mean, yeah, whilst whilst pe- these guys were having these conversations in the dialogue or in real life, there were slaves waiting on them, and they're talking about being good to all people, and you know they're they're coming out with these groundbreaking ethical there's, ideas. There's, yeah, there's a there's a portion of it where he's talking about for the guardians at least who they were there to restore civil order. They could be females, like women could have roles. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, women could have roles within leadership, which for that time would have been... It's pretty revolutionary for that. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Plato and, um, and Socrates do make a few mentions to women, yeah. uh, like with the, the Delphic Oracle. But, yeah, Aristotle hates them. Women were sort of like ovens. For, <laughs> for, for, yeah, and they, were, yeah. they weren't women half-baked men. Yeah, they, like, yeah essentially. They, they yeah. were... Not fully formed men. Yeah, and they they're literally just incubators for babies. They were they were, they were passive in yeah yeah every sense of the word yeah like even in even in procreation yeah. all, all they did was store it and then yeah and it's the real relationships to be had are the ones between men and men yeah that was a, a definite ancient Greek theme as well the highest form of love was between two men whether it be uh, between two intellectuals or on the battlefield or... yeah mm. so you have to take in the context. With everything that Plato is saying. Yeah, for these guys to be saying anything near this. For these for guys time, to mention women. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah, it, it, is, it is massive, you know, small steps. So I think it's impossible for Karl Popper to say that, oh, he's Plato's fascist. That's, that's completely, as Vico would say, he's suffering. <laughs> <laughs> Already entered the gratuitous name dropping. Yeah, he's, uh, he's it's the conceit of scholars. It, he's reading history as if they thought the same yeah, as we do. Being anachronistic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Completely anachronistic. Yeah. I think there's this tendency to to look back on philosophers. Like, people who don't understand philosophy, I think they sometimes assume that when we're talking about Plato, we're just sort of bigging him up as a person, which isn't really the case. Like, a lot of people wonder, well, why do you spend so much time talking about Plato if he had, if he had all these things wrong? with his views if you know if it is sort of a, a kind of soft fascism anachronistically if it's if there are some bad ideas going on here and it's not perfect why not just start where it starts to get good later on mm. it, but but then you're falling short of some point in the future they're going to be saying that about us some point they're going yeah. to be saying which is why I think it's, it's, it's more useful to track these ideas from their inception to go right back to ancient Greece and follow it through so when we say things like Platonic or Aristotelian we're talking about not so much you know we're not like fetishizing the the people themselves that that's the thing with the i think a lot of people think that lately they start pulling down statues of people 
it's like well, we're not we're not when we build statues of people and things like we and like when we have these kinds of conversations about Plato we're not fetishizing the people so much as the ideas they represent and their place within the progression of ideas it's exactly that we're talking about a progression that starts with somewhere mm. we're not holding ancient Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle we're not holding them in such high regard you know for their initial ideas but for what they started yeah for, for where their ideas led to eventually we certainly wouldn't want to establish Plato's Republic now no no but we look at it as a kind of time capsule we see it as over its time this is revolutionary no one else was thinking these same things that Plato was unexpressing. Yeah. So you've got to take it from the standpoint of it's a marvel within its time. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of democracy, for instance, could be traced back to the way that philosophers and you know ancient Greeks would talk, where they get a, a member of the public and he ran like jury duty and they get him to make laws. Or they have a council or whatever. I mean, it's all well and good saying, "Oh, we had democracy before." It's just, it's just people being equal, but not quite. Like the the very foundations of democracy as we know it today, as a as a you know, in what it represents in law, comes from ancient Greece. So yeah, it, it's interesting to see where those ideas come from, and that's you know the reason why we obsess over books like well, I don't think obsess the right word. Why why we value books like the Republic and the Symposium and the Leviathan and On Liberty. Well, from that kind of perspective you could think that too you can see a progression in art the styles have changed da vinci versus picasso right you can see that somewhere in between those two a lot has changed but you can still admire them both for what they were doing in their time Mm. i don't know that's how i kind of view it because you're still admiring it for what it is rather than what it so it has to be taken in the history of the context of it. Exactly. And it's probably more interesting to read things you don't agree with than you do agree with. And that's one of the things you, you really learn from philosophy, or at least you should learn. What, it challenges what is, you yeah. to make your own point of view stronger. Yeah, exactly. The beauty of philosophy is that you're not always going to like it, you're not always going to understand it, but at least you're going to think something about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay, right. The yeah. cave thing, right? We have to talk about the cave in the bomb. So we talked about the cave, but what we didn't talk about is how that relates to probably one of Plato's most important ideas, which is the forms. This is where Plato starts to get a little bit metaphysical, which is a word you'll probably hear all too often. The best way to explain it is for an example. So in Plato's mind, yeah, um, a chair is a good idea. So you always hear the chair. The chair is the a chair basic example. Brought. Yeah, the form of the chair. Yeah. So in the world of forms, there is a chair. This is the perfect chair. This is the perfect example of a chair in every single way. The perfect shape, the perfect colour, the perfect support for your back. Anything you can name about a chair is the perfect way. And what we have is it a is, representation it is of that. The chair. Correct, it is the chair. So what we see as a chair relates to the chair in the forms, but it is a less perfect version of that. So what we see as a chair. Obviously, that can mean anything. It can mean a, an office chair, or an armchair, anything All these like that. fucking horrible squeaky chairs that were sat on. Like this one. <laughs> you can hear that. <laughs> no, but I think what's important is Plato assumes that every time we imagine a chair, we're remembering the chair in the world of the forms. But slightly worse. But we can't remember it exactly. Yeah, yeah so he thinks our souls... Uh, I, I mean, I haven't done this since A-level, but because our souls are perfect forms of ourselves... 
and they previously existed in the world of the forms, which is like this other dimension thing. But it's, it's like the Tarnas. Yeah, it's it's not clear whether he <laughs> whether he thinks <laughs> this is a real place metaphysically, mm-hmm. or whether he it's just an idea. Mm-hmm. Because none of that. Because he also talks about the form of a bed, but that you know, a lot of writers have pointed out that might be a joke. <laughs> he, he, I, he know. I know that there's like, um, uh, forms of ideas like. This is the, the form of a good. The form of a good is, yes. is the main one. But whether whether there's a form of every single object in the world of the forms uh, is debatable. But so our souls previously existed in this world, and when we're conceptualizing these ideas, mm-hmm. like a chair, it's our souls remembering the perfect idea of a chair do you just eat a peanut off the floor <laughs> <laughs> I dropped it right okay Okay. so it's our souls remembering somehow in, he, I don't think he ever really goes into explaining it no. we are connected with we are reaching into the world of the forms dragging it's out it's almost a memory isn't it yeah. a distant memory we're dragging out going back to the chair we're dragging out an image of a chair and trying our very best to recreate, to, to recreate it but we'll never get there Yep. So I think the point of the world of the forms because it it sounds like just something that's sort of scientifically wrong. Hmm. The big problem with talking about the world of forms is that Plato exists. Uh, his entire philosophy exists on the assumption that the forms is real. Yeah. And that is a big problem. So if you refute the world of forms, you refute that's everything. As as a vast majority of Plato's philosophy. But I think in relation to the Republic, he's trying to get as close to the form of good. Yes. As he can possibly yeah, get. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the form of the... Regardless of, like, individual objects like beds and chairs, he's more interested in ideas and he's more interested in the form of the good, which in the uh, allegory of the cave, which is... When you, when you leave the cave... A bunch of guys tied up in a cave. All they see is illusions, the shadows on the wall. They break out of the cave, or at least one of them does, and they're blinded by the sun, but they eventually learn their ignorance and realise that they've been seeing illusions their whole life. The sun, in that analogy, is the form of the good. He's trying to suggest that only f- through philosophy you will at least get a glimpse, get a glimpse of, the forms. of the forms. He calls it the real world, but whether you, you know... Yeah, this is, this is where a lot of the, this Matrix stuff comes in. It's mm. like, what's real? I mean, yeah, a, lo- a lot of more grounded philosophers later would... Because you know, uh, Plato is definitely one of the most, if not pretty much the most paradigmatically uh, one of the most metaphysical philosophers he you know he relies on the, the existence of other worlds he relies on all these almost sort of supernatural concepts mm. whilst other philosophers take them more figuratively or you know I mean Aristotle straight after him is, is a rationalist he basically births modern science or at least the, the precursings of it but yeah you, you rarely find other philosophers that, that like um there are books like the, the Timaeus, which is the one in the School of Athens, and that the famous picture he's he's uh, seen carrying. I mean, yeah, that that's basically like an argument for God, and his idea of a God is like a some sort of weird craftsman that creates the forms, and that's that's where it gets really batshit crazy. Hmm. I think this is another reason why we enjoy philosophy. It's because it's just so you'd never think about it. You you would never think on your own. That oh somewhere there is another world where there's the the perfect form of everything of everything, but we're just trying to replicate it. Why would anyone think that? Mm. And that's why I think it's so interesting to try and at the very core to observe it and then maybe appreciate it, maybe you know argue against it. I think that's why. 
philosophy remains such an important and enjoyable subject. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. I think on that note, we uh, will say goodbye. And thank you to old Rosie for getting us pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>